This is the sound of turning ideas into software. This is the sound of engineering and passion. Work. Work more. Work harder. Experiment. Build. Break. And build again. Write code. Improve it. Job done. Celebrate. Insurance. Finance. Retail. Defense. Robotics. Energy. Amethyx. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Amethyx Technologies based in Belgium. Yet another episode about embedded machine learning. This is still part of the series that I started a few episodes ago. So feel free to listen to the first episodes of this series. You can find them at the official website, datascienceathome.com, but of course also on uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and all the other podcast aggregators. Well, in this episode, I'm going to continue that uh, explanation about uh, uh, machine learning for embedded devices. And uh, in particular, I will focus on uh, compilers and uh, optimizers. So how can we optimize models uh, after we have developed them in uh, many of the frameworks that we uh, have at our disposal, uh, how can we target the particular architecture that is the hardware or the edge device that we want to run our model on? And uh, of course, before doing that, we need to do some kind of transformation of our uh, high-level code, uh, usually with the uh, aid of a framework, and compile that uh, or transform or lower, as I will explain in a, in, a, in a minute, to what the actual hardware will execute. So the machine code that is actually implementing, uh, that is actually executing the code for us. Now, all this falls under the umbrella of uh, computer science and in particular, compiler and optimization languages and compilers, which, uh, to be honest with you, uh, back in the days when I was a student at the university, it was one of those very tedious subjects to digest. It was something really, uh, I'm not saying abstract, but uh, it didn't really have an immediate, I, I personally didn't have that immediate um, understanding. Uh, and so it took, some, it took me some time before I realized how important and how powerful these methodologies are, uh, that indeed are the typical uh, scenarios that one studies and finds in uh, in programming languages and uh, in uh, uh, compile, compiler techniques and uh, uh, optimization theory uh, for uh, computer programming languages. To be honest with you, there's nothing new because uh, computer scientists and in particular compiler and interpreter designers are already very familiar with these tools and with this concept. So uh, there is nothing new if you speak to a, a computer scientist. Uh, there is nothing new that we are saying here and is happening now for machine learning models or for deep learning models uh, that a computer scientist hasn't done already with high-level languages, high-level programming languages, and, you know, uh, going down and down until uh, machine code. In particular, assembly, back in my days, uh, assembly for x86 or 88. So... The idea of having different hardware and write your program once for multiple hardware 
you know, it's for, for different architectures, it's something that is very well known to computer scientists. And uh, there have been trends and things that, you know, movements during the years uh, or the decades, in fact, in which uh, uh, engineers preferred, for example, to have a uh, an interpreter or to have, you know, a non-compiled uh, programming language as so a runtime that would execute that piece of code on any machine, on any hardware. And for this, we remember, you know, Python, but before that, Java is another one. Like all these programming languages have their own runtime that you need to install, and it's you know quite hardware agnostic. You know, it doesn't really matter where on which machine you are, on which architecture you are running the the interpreter, as long as there is you know the interpreter is supporting that particular architecture. But the Python code or the Java code that you write you know, it's it's pretty much the same, right? Depending independently of what architecture the interpreter is running. Before the concept of interpreter, history has been teaching us <laughs> about compilers. And so the fact that you can still have one programming language and so one version of your program and the compiler will do the job of uh, uh, transforming that, you know, high-level language into machine code for uh, the hardware of your choice. And so you might be compiling for an Intel, uh, then you have to recompile if you want to run to uh, another architecture, for example, a RISC-V, and you have to yet recompile uh, the same code again for an ARM CPU or for an M1 or for a PowerPC or whatever uh, exotic architecture you would like to run your code on. So the uh, concept of the compiler, again, I want to stress on this, is nothing new. The compiler has always been there and always will be. Now, if you are listening to this episode, it means that, I hope, you have listened to the previous episodes of this series, uh, Embedded Machine Learning, and uh, by now you should be familiar or you should accept the concept that, that there is a very good likelihood that we are going to move compute from the cloud back to the edge devices, right? And so this is kind of a, a, a cycle in uh, in uh, computer science history, in the history of computer science, in which we are running things, you know, back and forth from remote systems back to the device. Then we have smart device, and we run on device, and then we run back to the cloud, and then from back to the cloud we go back to the to the device, and so on. So this happened already a few times in the history of computer science. And this is usually happening because requirements are different and, and, and things change and the way we use services change. And it is more logic for, you know, under certain circumstances to run code remotely on a backend, like a, a, one of these big machines, big servers. And there are other situations in which, in fact, it's more convenient to run things on the edge, right? And if you are listening to this episode, it's because you are pretty much understanding that for certain scenarios, when it comes to machine learning, you better run things on the edge rather than waiting for the cloud to uh, make your predictions or send, first of all, to the cloud. You have to send your data from the device. So you need a network. Um, you need a network connection. Also, you might be breaking or you might be dealing with GDPR regulations. You can send the data, you cannot send the data. And sometimes, you know, it's not easy. So you have to deal with these things, uh, these new regulations that 20 years, of course, did not exist, right? Uh, so you are sending stuff to the cloud. The cloud has these one big servers receiving requests from different devices, running the prediction, performing the prediction, and then returning a payload, 
or a response back to the client uh, so that the client can, can consume that prediction and move on, right? So that's kind of the, uh, now it's traditional way of doing machine learning when the machine learning model is running remotely. But there are situations in which, um, and we have been stressing on this in the first two episodes of this series, in which indeed it is much more convenient to run things directly on the, on the device, like on the edge. Uh, think about um, healthcare applications, or think about a, um, a medical device, right? Uh, you cannot have the assumption that you know, you're running the model somewhere else, first of all, because you're sending very sensitive data of the patient somewhere else, but I can say, ah, but uh, I'm running the server myself, so data is protected there. Yes, sure. But think about a, a wristband while, while you're running. You know, you cannot expect that all your data is sent to one of these many uh, wristband producers out there. Don't, don't, I don't want to make names here, but you know what I'm talking about. So all, you know, when, you're go, when you go running the pace and the, the heartbeat and uh, all the other sensor that, sensors that you might have, uh, like pace efficiency analytics. I'm pr pretty big fan of these things. I'm a runner myself, and I run all these analytics on my on my wristband. Well, I have one of these super famous wristbands that you can find for fitness. But essentially, uh, all that stuff is running on my watch, right? Um, and that makes sense because I want response in real time or near real time. And then when I go home, of course, there are other uh, scenarios in which I would like to, you know. Um, understand what was the efficiency of my run or or what are you know some high level analytics for example how good i am doing with respect to 3 months ago or 6 months ago uh, you know that diff that's a different type of analytics that of course requires historical uh, measurements but for real time stuff no cloud is involved uh, in fact not even my phone is involved in uh, when i go running i usually run without the phone just with a wristband right um, and the same can happen, for example, autonomous vehicles. Don't expect that a car will send the sensor data to the backend, to a server that, that we'll have to analyze. Also because we cannot expect, first of all, the latency would be incredibly high. Like even if the latency is not that high, uh, still it could be critical because, you know, you have to take decisions in, in real time, in fact, and that's very important for an autonomous vehicle to you know, not rely on a cloud or not rely on a server, on a remote server, helping the vehicle or, or driving the vehicle, uh, essentially. For energy, renewable energy, think about a, a wind turbine uh, with some sensors that have to stop the turbine when there are critical situations of wind or weather conditions, etc. Or a power grid. Again, you don't want to rely on the cloud. If the cloud or the network connection is off for that critical time frame well, you're going to be in trouble, right? With this, I hope I made a decent job convincing you that there are situations in which we have no option, in fact. Everything has to run on the device. Now, where is the problem? The problem is that when we say hardware, what do we mean? <laughs> That's the problem. Like, there is so much, uh, there are so many hardware architectures out there uh, that it's quite impossible, or very difficult to uh, keep up, first of all, and also to connect all the high-level frameworks that data scientists and data engineers use 
and connect them or optimize them for the architectures that are the hardware architectures out there. So, you know, it's quite difficult. There are these two worlds, they run at very different pace. You have the front-end folks and you have the back-end folks. By back-end, I mean the hardware vendors. And they kind of produce things at a different velocity, right? With different constraints, with different requirements. Um, and so it would be nice to have these two worlds speak with each other uh, so that we can speed up the entire workflow, the entire pipeline of making a, uh, of, for example, using a, a machine learning framework, building a model, and you know, make sure that that model is indeed is indeed optimized for pretty much any hardware out there, or definitely all the hardware I'm interested in running my model uh, onto. So think about this. You know, uh, to to give you some names about what I'm what I what I mean. Uh, think about the world of front end uh, frameworks. We have the most famous ones: TensorFlow, TensorFlow Lite, uh, Scikit-Learn. Uh, like GBM, we have MXNet, we have PyTorch, PyTorch, I'm a big fan of PyTorch. Uh, we have Jax, we have all the other exotic, we have Tiano, uh, although it's discontinued, another great front-end, by the way. So we have all this stuff from the front-end. These, these are frameworks that allow us to write the deployment model, the, the, the logistic regression, the clustering algorithm, whatever. They allow us to write something that other data scientists can understand and also sometimes even the business can understand because they actually, uh, they are very high level programming languages. We use Python, we can use even JavaScript. Uh, please don't use JavaScript, but you know what I mean. Like It's like, it's stuff that makes our life easy, uh, you know, to develop models and see if they actually can solve the problem. Now, are they optimized? Probably not, but that's not the point. The point is, can I tackle that particular data science or machine learning problem with this particular architecture, with this particular model, right? So that's exactly what these front-end frameworks uh, are uh, are doing. Um, now, on the other side, there is back-end, and back-end is all the hardware that you can think of. Well, of course, there is a lot of hardware that we don't even know of the existence, <laughs> usually in the military. But for or the off-the-shelf or relatively off-the-shelf, we can have, for example, Raspberry Pis. We can have Arduino boards. We can have uh, uh, FPGAs. We can have ASICs. We can have uh, GPUs. And of course, which GPU? Uh, ARM CPUs, Intel, AMD, RISC-V, M1, Android. <laughs> you know, Apple phones, etc., etc. So, you know, the ecosystem uh, of backend and hardware architectures is, is incredible. And so having a model uh, that will be optimized for any of these architectures is, is a crazy idea. And, uh, and even when you do so, even when you are lucky enough to uh, have the best architecture of your choice that is also... Uh, pretty well supported by your front-end framework. Well, even then, um, if you change hardware uh, at some point, you have to start the entire optimization process from scratch. So it's it's not easy. It's a very time-consuming task. So is there a way to, let's say, bridge this gap between front-end folks and back-end folks? And uh, if you ask a computer scientist, uh, especially those who have been playing with compilers and interpreters, well, they will tell you 
really? We've been doing this stuff for the last 40 years, <laughs> probably, probably more. In fact, since the invention of, of, of C, of the C programming language, we know what compilers are for and why we should really love the concept of the compiler. And well, long story short, there is a way to bridge this gap between front-end folks and back-end folks, which means from frameworks, in particular of machine learning frameworks, and uh, of course, hardware vendors and hardware architectures. And that you know, gap can be filled by a component that goes under the name of intermediate representation. So intermediate representation, also usually referred as IR, for you know, the acronym of intermediate representation, is one of these you know, big monsters in between the code that you write and the code that the actual machine is executing. And these two codes are very different from each other. So if you think about, you know, I, I'm going to use PyTorch as a reference framework because, because I love PyTorch. It's probably one of the best frameworks in machine learning that you can think of at the moment. If you write your convolution layer, right, with, let's say, a, a ReLU uh, activation function. So it's a very simple model, just two layers, a convolution and a ReLU. Don't know what that does, probably nothing, but whatever. Now, the code that I'm writing is probably five lines of code. Let's make below 10 with all the class declarations and, you know, instance uh, instantiating the class and so on and so forth. A dozen lines of code, maybe less. Now, this code will be somehow translated into something else that the actual CPU or the GPU will see. And what the CPU and GPU will see is a bunch of instructions, machine code instructions, that are specific to that particular CPU or GPU. Who does that translation? Well, the compiler. The compiler is in charge of taking that I level language, Python in this case, and lowering to an intermediate representation and then down, 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 we keep lowering and lowering until we get to the machine code, which is the actual code run on your CPU or GPU. Now, this intermediate representation, in fact, is the key to bridge that gap that I was talking about before, uh, before between front-end folks and back-end folks. Because imagine this, I am a framework vendor framework developer, let's say. I build a new version of PyTorch or a better PyTorch than PyTorch. It's going to be hard, but whatever. Now, I build this thing and, of course, which hardware am I going to support? Probably just Intel or, I don't know, whatever, the, the most important, the most widely adopted hardware uh, architecture out there, whatever it is. That's it. Now, on the other side, I have the hardware folks who come with a new hardware design, a better ARM than ARM, or another processor part of the ARM family, or a RISC-V, or a fantastic GPU, or whatever. Now, what happens there is that my framework has to know the specs of the hardware that I would like to support, or I would like my framework to be supported. And as you can understand, that is a very time-consuming task and also a very expensive one because you need, you know, people with very complex skills, um, you know, to do that type of optimization and support. But there is a, a better idea to this. And again, computer science come uh, to the rescue here, uh, which is intermediate representation. So these frameworks, will, this new framework will produce 
a high-level intermediate representation. So, for, for example, PyTorch does that, but it's even TensorFlow. They produce computation graphs, right? And the computation graph is, in fact, hardware agnostic. It doesn't have to know on which hardware you are going to execute that particular computation graph. In fact, I don't care because as long as I can take that computation graph and pass it to, let's say, a low-level intermediate representation, then I'm good to, you know, lowering that intermediate representation to the machine code. And so you will have on one side, you will have the front-end people who just make frameworks to generate computation graphs, also called high-level intermediate representation. On the other side, you have the hardware vendors or hardware manufacturers or designers who just have to design hardware around a low-level intermediate representation. Now, high-level and low-level intermediate representation are essentially the common you know, language that front-end and back-end uh, folks speak and they understand each other. And one is agnostic of the other, right? So th that's beautiful because now uh, if I'm a front-end developer, I just have to get until the high-level intermediate representation. And if I'm an hardware vendor, I only have to start from the low-level intermediate representation. I don't care what computation graph means if I'm a hardware designer, which makes perfect sense. At that point, we can build tools that essentially work on the entire pipeline from the high-level framework to the computation graph, to the graph, to the low-level intermediate representation, and finally to the machine code that is indeed hardware-specific. This is the job of the compiler. And uh, it's a very, it's not an easy thing. You know, compiler designers are very rare animals out there because they do something that is extremely complex, I'm telling you. Now, when we have the intermediate representation of our machine learning model, in fact, we have a computation graph that isn't executed just yet. It's, you know, it's, it resembles a bit what we call lazy computation. Uh, if you are familiar with, for example, Python Dask, that's exactly the same concept. Even TensorFlow, if I'm not wrong, uh, version 1.0, uh, did that, did this lazy computation uh, thing, which is starting from the model, it just doesn't execute the model just yet. It first transforms it into a computation graph, and that computation graph now can be optimized. And so you better optimize your graph first before the actual execution. So that's what, for example, Dask or TensorFlow 1 uh, and several other frameworks do. And the approach, again, is exactly the same. We can optimize now the uh, uh, computation graph applying some of the most sophisticated optimization techniques. And this is also a very time-consuming task. You need very skilled individuals uh, to, to, perf to do this type of optimization. It's very difficult uh, to optimize and to be sure that that part kind of optimization is, is indeed the optimal way of optimizing a graph. It is very, very hard. It's in fact uh, NP-hard <laughs> for mathematicians, uh, and I will tell you why in a minute. But essentially, the only thing that you can do, you know, when you want to optimize a computation graph is, well, you can ask a, a an optimization engineer, and of course the level of optimization depends on, on the skills of the person you are hiring. Or you can use automatic algorithms 
to optimize your computation graph. And that's exactly what I want to talk about in this episode. Now, when I say optimizing a computation graph, I mean applying probably the uh, most widely form of optimization that currently occur uh, on computation graphs and on uh, code in general. For example, uh, loop tiling. This essentially is a technique that allows you to change the uh, order of data accessing in a loop in order to improve the uh, usage of or exploit in particular uh, that particular hardware's memory layout or, or cache if there is a cache. Uh, operator fusion, uh, when you want to fuse multiple operators into one so that you avoid usually additional uh, memory accessing. Uh, parallelization, when you uh, divide your work into different chunks that usually are independent from each other and you perform the computation individually uh, in parallel, if you have multiple cores, for example. And uh, vectorization is another uh, type of optimization that uh, given a, a loop or, a, or a, a nested loop that is, let's say, 44444, <laughs> that's going to be very, very complex. But um, instead of executing one item at a time, as you would do in a naive way, it uses hardware primitives to operate on multiple elements at the same time and exploit also uh, the fact that things are, you know, contiguous in memory. And so memory access can be so-called vectorized, you know, because it's, uh, it's going to be much faster. So these are some of the optimization techniques that are very well known to compiler engineers, uh, interpreter developers and designers, and also are available for machine learning models. Because after all, what is machine learning? Machine learning is software engineering. It's, it, it's exactly the same thing. You're writing code and you want that code to be as fast as possible on that particular hardware architecture. That's it. There is nothing new, you know, if you from from a high level perspective. Now, as I said, um, if you hire a an optimization engineer, uh, it depends how good this person is, uh, how much expertise he has on that field and on that particular hardware architecture, uh, to you know experience a level of optimization that is indeed excellent, right? So you cannot really say. Uh, okay, I'm going to call an optimization engineer and I'm going to have the, the best optimization or the, 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 the model optimized at, at its best. You, you cannot say that, right? But in addition to that, or as a replacement, especially at the beginning, uh, before hiring a, a, an optimization engineer, you probably would like to try something that is machine learning driven or driven by a model. Uh, in order to speed up your own model. <laughs> so it sounds like tricky to understand, but uh, in fact, yes, you can use machine learning to improve machine learning or to speed up machine learning models. And this is exactly what, for example, uh, PyTorch does with the QDNN autotune that you can call from the namespace torch.backends.qdnn.benchmark equal true. I will uh, report some of the links uh, to this tutorial in the show notes of this episode on datascienceatome.com. But essentially what you are doing there, you know, you're leveraging PyTorch um, backend to search for a set of options to execute a convolution operator in the case of QDNN autotune. Uh, and then it will choose for you the fastest way to perform that convolution. Now, this is very helpful. It can speed up things a lot, but 
as we can understand, it is pretty much designed around the concept of convolution operators. So there's no other thing that can be optimized with QDNN. So QDNN is per pretty much limited to the, the you know to optimizing convolution operators or convolutions in general. But you know you know that a, a big chunk of machine learning is not doing convolutions at all. Uh, even in deep learning, it's not necessarily true that you will find a convolution operator all the time. And that's why I would like to introduce yet another compiler or another solution for optimization, which is Apache TVM. And Apache TVM is probably one of the best compilers that we have so far uh, for machine learning models. And uh, in particular, uh, a solution that is much more general than uh, QDNN uh, goes under the name of AutoTVM, uh, for obvious reasons, <laughs> that uh, uh, essentially uh, works in a much smarter and more sophisticated way. Uh, that is, it takes your uh, computation graph that can be a relatively large graph, and uh, it uh, will split the, the big graph into many subgraphs, right? Not just the operator. So it, it, it focuses on the subgraph. And then it tries to, uh, you know, predict uh, how big each subgraph is and how long would it take to execute that part of the graph, right? Uh, the single subgraph. At that point, it tries to optimize, which means it tries the, it finds the best possible path out of that subgraph, and it stitches together all the best paths of, uh, of each subgraph into one, right? So it's a kind of a greedy algorithm. It isn't that indeed a greedy algorithm in which you always take the, the best of the, of the chunk that you are focusing on, and then you stitch together all the chunks to, you know, have a, uh, the best path overall. Now, of course, this is an heuristic. Uh, it's not guaranteed to be optimal, but it works very well. And uh, several times on uh, pretty much uh, on different machine learning models in, in the deep learning field, uh, of course, uh, you can speed up things uh, up to 150%. So uh, as pretty intense uh, optimization. Now, what's the problem with this? Because, of course, all beautiful things always have a problem. <laughs> this is true in in life, and, of course, is it, it is true in machine learning as well. So, what's the cost of this? Well, the cost is pretty high, in the sense that AutoTVM generate code for you for that particular target that you are, you know, developing for. Think about a Raspberry Pi or an ARM Cortex-M3, whatever. <laughs> um, I'm not sure it, yeah, it's supported, it's supported. So AutoTVM will generate the code for you, for, for, for your target, and then it will execute, it will choose the path of the graph that you want to execute. It will actually execute it for real on the target hardware, and it will collect metrics, execution metrics, uh, after the target hardware has indeed executed. When it collects these metrics, essentially it is building training data so that it can, you know, keep training the statistical cost model as we as we go. And this means that, you know, it takes hours, it can take hours or, or days to, you know, complete or explore uh, the entire or almost the entire space of uh, of paths uh, of your graph depends of course how complex your your the graph to be optimized is but you know this can take can take a while it can take a few days for a relatively large graph uh, i'm pretty sure that it can also take a few days for a that also a very skilled optimization engineer 
would take a couple of days or a, or a few days uh, indeed to perform an optimization. Uh, and many times it could be that that optimization uh, can be comparable to what an automated tool can, uh, can give you. Now, of course, if you are dealing with really custom or, or very exotic architectures and very exotic models, uh, probably you know, manual intervention is what you would like to have in the first place. But in all other cases, let me quote this, normal people, <laughs> though you're not normal already if you are dealing with this stuff, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I think that giving uh, AutoTFM a shot would be uh, extremely beneficial. Now, of course, there are several other compilers out there Think about NVIDIA, uh, they come with their own compiler, NVCC, for those who are uh, familiar with uh, uh, blaming their Linux machine and uh, NVIDIA drivers. <laughs> you guys know what I mean, if you're listening. <laughs> well, NVCC is one of these proprietary compilers that is built and you know produced by the same hardware uh, vendors, so the same people who uh, make the hardware, of course, they also make the compiler, and it's supposed to be, you know, the best shot you have in translating high-level code to uh, machine-level code for CUDA or for uh, NVIDIA GPUs, of course. Uh, but we have several other open-source solutions out there. Uh, PyTorch Glow, for example, is another one. I will have the, I will report some of the links in the show notes of this episode, as always, so uh, don't uh, take notes, just listen to the episode. <laughs> there is also XLA, which is uh, uh, produced by Google, but it's also open source. Uh, it's part of the TensorFlow um, repository. And of course, there are several others. Uh, there have been also some attempts uh, you know, of uh, developers who have fun uh, developing uh, compilers and interpreters. Yeah, so probably I will dedicate an episode or two to some hands-on on these tools because they are really fascinating, they are really cool, they are very powerful, and also give you a better idea of how you can squeeze your model to the last bit when it comes to executing your model on, uh, on tiny devices or very constrained and low-power uh, devices. I hope you enjoyed the show and of course uh, I will renew the invitation to the Discord channel. We have an official Discord channel. You will find the link in the show notes of this episode on the official website datasciencesatome.com as well. That's it for today. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.